Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. It's my privilege this morning to wind up the series we've been doing on the people of worship. So far in the series, we've considered David as a pattern of worship. Uh, Stephen looked at the Samaritan woman at the well and probed what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. Chris showed us how worship and warfare function together. And then last week, Megan considered Mary of Bethany and looked at the price of worship. So I'm wrapping the series up this morning and I want to look at some examples of worship from the book of Daniel. Now what I want to do to begin is kind of give you a bit of a context for the book of Daniel and then I'll introduce you to the characters that I want to examine. The book of Daniel begins with Israel in exile. Israel's idolatry, rebellion and disobedience had reached a crescendo and God in a reenactment of the Garden of Eden story drove the inhabitants of the land or the garden if you like out into exile and Israel finds themselves in Babylon. Now there's a certain irony in the fact that they uh, find themselves in Babylon because Israel had given themselves over to the worship of, of idols and find themselves exiled, sent to the most idolatrous city on the planet. And there's a principle in that. God's judgment is often to give you an overdose of the very thing that you thought you wanted most. More often in scripture, God doesn't have to thump his hand down in judgment, he simply lifts his hands off, a la Romans chapter one, and lets us have an overdose of the very things that we have striven for. And we find in the end that what we wanted isn't what we wanted. Babylon was so bad that its very name became synonymous with wickedness and demonic activity down through the ages. So that in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 5, and chapter 18, verse 2, Babylon is described as the mother of harlots, the habitation of demons, a haunt for every foul spirit and un every unclean bird. So the situation is somewhat dire, to say the least. And in Babylon, we are introduced to a handful of Jewish exiles. Of course, Daniel is the most famous of them, but his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, provide wonderful examples of worship in the midst of a very difficult circumstance and situation. I suspect that you're probably more familiar with Daniel's friends, Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four men constitute a fascinating study on the price, the persistence, and the power of worship in the midst of a distinctly hostile culture. The story is found in the opening chapters of the book of Daniel, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's an account of an intense battle for the allegiance of these men's hearts and lives. The culture that they found themselves immersed in was not a benign live and let live atmosphere. The Babylonian system actively and aggressively challenged these young men's worldview and it demanded allegiance to this new order. The educational system in which they were part sought to conform them. Uh, 
So that chapter one and verse four says the, they were indoctrinated in the Babylonian language and the law of magic and fortune telling. The education system sought to shape them. The system sought to alter their physical tastes. In chapter one, verse five, they were appointed a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank. So they sought to shape them educationally. They sought, they sought to shape their, their tastes. And Daniel and his friends' refusal of the king's food, which you can read about in chapter one, was much more than a matter of simple, you know, I don't like that. I don't like silver beet. I'm, I, can, I, can I pass on that? It's not a matter of likes and dislikes. It wasn't a concern about calorific intake. It was for them about table fellowship. And table fellowship at that time, and still true in the Middle East, is a matter of covenant agreement and loyalty. When you eat at somebody's table, you are entering into a, a relationship with them. And so Daniel and his friends' refusal of the king's food was for them a matter of allegiance and loyalty to Yahweh. I'm getting way ahead of myself here, but let me note that the temptation to compromise that came to those boys from the kitchen and our culture is probably much more likely to come from the boardroom or the bedroom. Enough said for the moment. The Babylonian system was competing for their allegiance in order to transform them into obedient, subservient, submissive Babylonians. It changed their name. And in the changing of their name, it really is manipulating and maneuvering their identity. If you've read Daniel chapter one, or Daniel, you'll know that chapter one ends with Daniel and his friends being a wonderful examples of how to resist the cultural pressures that seek to conform them. And chapter one ends on a high note of spiritual victory. However, that's not the end of the story, and neither is it the end of the pressure. It never is. In Luke chapter four, we have the story of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, and he also, in that struggle, gains victory in the encounter. That too was not the end of the temptation, and in Luke four thirteen it says, Satan left him until an opportune time. The message translation says, the devil retreated temporarily, lying in wait for another opportunity. Satan is an opportunist, and he's nothing if not persistent. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, had one of his characters speaking about the dark lord of the story, and he said, after, always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. And that's the way the evil of this situation uh, also acts. Having been defeated in chapter one, it just simply changes its shape, regroups and comes again. Now, if you're familiar with Daniel, chapter two of Daniel is about Nebuchadnezzar's incredible dream. He has a dream of a massive statue made of different kinds of metal. There's a head of gold, there's a chest of silver, then there's brass and then feet of iron. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this giant statue standing astride over the world. A stone made without hands is cut out and it rolls down, smashes into the statue and ultimately destroys the statue. And that stone grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And Daniel, in the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, explains that the stone cut without hands represents the kingdom of God that ultimately would destroy the statue that represents the world powers that subsequent to Nebuchadnezzar would dominate the earth. 
Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar that he is the head of gold, the top part of the statue. And I'm sure given what we know about Nebuchadnezzar's character, he would have been enamored by that fact. Fast forward 23 years to chapter three, and Nebuchadnezzar has created a giant gold statue. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that he's given a great deal of thought to the dream of the previous chapter and the head of gold portion of the dream. And so he makes this giant gold statue. If you read through chapter three, you cannot help but be struck by the number of times it explains that this image was handmade. Let me, let me read the verses. Verse one, Nebuchadnezzar made the statue. Verse two, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse three, twice it says, Nebuchadnezzar had set it up. Nebuchadnezzar had set it up. Verse five, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse seven, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 12, that you have set up. Verse 14, that I have set up. Verse 15, that I have made. And verse 18, that you have set up. We are being told something here. 10 times we're told it. This image was man-made. And I think we have a deliberate contrast between the image that was man-made and the stone that was cut without hands from the previous chapter. That theme, by the way, is a theme that runs right through the Scriptures into the New Testament. So that you find Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 58, speaking of the temple, and he says, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Something made with hands, something made without hands. In the epistles of Paul, Paul compares Jewish circumcision made with hands as per Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands with the true spiritual circumcision made without hands as per Colossians 2.11, you are circumcised with a circumcision without hands. So you've got this contrast being set up, made without hands, made with hands. Handmade represents the best human flesh can do and inevitably ends in idolatrous worship and allegiance. Made without hands represents what God does and can do and is meant to lead us to pure worship. So Daniel chapter three starts with the phrase, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, a handmade image. Now, although these three men, because here we are dealing not so much with Daniel, but his three friends, these three men had been in Babylon since their teen years. They are probably now in their mid-40s. They have not become Babylonians. They have not forgotten their Hebrew identity or the Hebrew story or the Hebrew promises. And as Jewish men familiar with the story of Israel, a golden image would summon up all kinds of memories and raise all kinds of red flags. An ancient Jewish rabbi once commented that the seeds of the exile that these men are now experiencing were planted in Israel's idolatrous worship of two golden statues. The first is recorded in Exodus chapter 32 where Moses is up on the mountain and Aaron makes a golden calf and Israel worships the golden calf. The second is found in 1 Kings chapter 12 where Jeroboam sets up the idolatrous statues in Samaria after the northern kingdom had broken away in rebellion from the southern kingdom. So those two statues, the rabbi said, were the seeds that ultimately bloomed into the exile of Babylon. And these three young exiles 
themselves. They know their history. It's etched in their corporate psyche. They are well aware of the dangers, the inherent dangers of bowing to a golden image. You know, the crucial and classic danger of idolatry, profoundly relevant to you and me too, is that what you revere, you ultimately resemble. You ultimately begin to look like the things that capture your allegiance. Let me show you this principle as it began working out in the very early days of Israel's history. The first statue they bowed down to was the golden calf in Exodus 32. Verse 4 of that chapter says, Aaron took gold from their hands, cast it in the form of a calf, shaping it with an engraving tool. Just Go down a few verses to verse 9 and God says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. The theological dictionary of the Old Testament has a comment about this concept of being stiff-necked and it says, it is based on the notion of a recalcitrant, stubborn animal, an oxen balking at the yoke. Here's a people worshipping a golden calf and then suddenly starting to behave like one. Something, by the way, that they continued to do down through their history. They start looking like the recalcitrant, stubborn animal balking at the yoke that God intends to put on them. Hosea chapter 4 verse 16 says, Israel are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. And in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 29, it says, they turned a stubborn shoulder and they stiffened their neck and they would not obey. Worshipping the calf, they suddenly start resembling one. In Exodus 32 verse 25, it also says that Moses came down the mountain, saw that the people were simply running wild. Aaron had let them run wild. And the Hebrew translation of the English phrase running wild has the idea of an animal that has broken loose. It's become unbridled. The reins are unattached and it's on the loose. And that idea too has to do with oxen. Israel has become like the animal it worshipped, stiff-necked, stubborn, unrestrained, uncontrollable. In Job chapter 39, verse 9 and 10, it says, A wild ox will not do what you tell it to do, nor will it stay in your farm at night. It will not let you fasten it to a plow, nor will it plow the fields for you. The wild ox is a very strong animal. It's an apt picture of what Israel as a people became. They worship the calf, they start behaving like a stubborn heifer. In Psalm 106, there's an interesting comment on that incident, and it says in verse 19, they made a calf at Horeb and they worshipped a cast image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Some translations of that phrase say they exchanged their glory. Some say they exchanged the glory of God. Well, whose glory did they exchange? Was it theirs or was it God's? And I'd want to say, yes, it was both. Their glory was God's glory on them as a people. People are made to be reflective images of God's glory. God made us in his likeness, in his image, to reflect his character, grace and glory into the world that we were supposed to be um, uh, servants, servants in and having authority over. That kind of glory stays on a people when they stay in contact 
with God through worship. It's only possible when we behold his face in worship. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about the fact that we Christians can be mirrors of that brightly reflect and brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the spirit of the Lord walks with, works within us, we become more and more like him. As we behold his face in worship, we become more and more like him, reflecting his grace and glory into the world. The idea of glory really involves three concepts. It has the idea of, you know, when we think about glory, a lot of people think of luminosity. You know, they think of, oh, you know, sparkling, something bright, something really intense. So you've got luminosity. The scripture actually talks about glory as being white. We, we have in, um, in New Zealand the idea of mana, and we talk about a person with mana. What we're talking about is this substance, this, this weight to that particular person. So glory has the idea of luminosity or brightness. It has the idea of mana, of weightness. At the bottom or, or the foundation of what glory is, is, is the word essence. So we have essence, we have weight, we have luminosity. And the first two are the result of the third. It is the essence of God that gives him substance, weight, and, and luminosity. It's his character that gives him his glory. We are changed as we engaged in worship so that we become more and more like him in essence. And then because of that essence, because of that character, there comes substance and, as it were, luminosity. We lose them like Israel lost the glory when they worshipped. They exchanged their glory. They lost it when they worshipped a substitute. We lose the glory of God, the essence, the weight and the luminosity when we give allegiance to substitutes because what we revere, we resemble. Now the Hebrew children, these three Hebrew children had their understanding deeply this, this understanding deeply etched into their psyche. And so as the story unfolds in Daniel chapter three, they refuse to bow down to this handmade God substitute. And pun intended, when they refuse to worship Nebuchadnezzar's image, things heat up. It always does when we refuse to bow to our culture's present ideologies and current idols. Things heat up when you say no. Now, some of you might be tempted to think, Don, all this might be somewhat interesting, but it's hardly applicable to us in the 21st century West. We don't have golden idols that we bow down to. Actually, I'm sure that most of you are far too astute to actually think that. Because we know that every culture has its priesthood, its totems, its rituals, and its shrines. In the 21st century West, they probably don't look like golden calves. They might, however, take the form of office towers, stadiums, gymnasiums, pawn parlors, or shopping malls. People don't worship Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of beauty and sexual love. The Romans called her Venus. And while no one in our culture that I know of is likely to bow down before a statue of Aphrodite, countless young people in our culture are driven to depression and eating disorders by obsessive concerns over body images and the need to be attractive. And huge numbers of people, male and increasingly female, if the figures are to be believed, find themselves firmly in bondage to pornography. Aphrodite is alive and well in the 21st century West. 
We might, burn, we might not burn incense to Artemis, the ancient god of hunt and success, but the relentless hunt for career advancement, success and prosperity in some people gets elevated to cosmic proportions so that they willingly perform a form of child sacrifice, neglecting their family to obtain that promotion, that academic post or that partnership. Perhaps idolatry is not as primitive as we may have thought. It's just changed its shape and grown again. You say to me, well, Don, you know, that's a bit frightening. How do we recognize when something has assumed idolatrous proportions in our lives? Can I suggest to you that whatever is more fundamental, more vital than God to my happiness, my identity, or my meaning in life, then it has become an idol. And if that sounds a bit mystical, a little bit esoteric, let me bring it down into measurable terms. Time, energy, and money. They are always an accurate measure of our deepest affections. You follow the path of those things through and you'll pretty much find an accurate picture of where your affection lies. Archbishop William Temple once very profoundly and wisely made this comment. He said, your religion, and I'd put in brackets your worship, your worship is what you do with your solitude. It's where your thoughts effortlessly and habitually go when there is nothing demanding your attention. That great philosopher, just joking, Glenn Campbell, called this the dreams of the everyday housewife. Where do your dreams go? Where do your thoughts effortlessly and habitually go when your attention is not required. You know, there was a time in my journey where this, this issue of imagination and where my thoughts habitually and effortlessly went really was deeply challenged by the Holy Spirit. I've told this story before, and so apologies to those of you who have heard it, but I haven't told it, I think, for a long time, and uh, I've, there's probably a lot of you who are newer to Gateway who haven't heard me tell the story. But growing up, I played a lot of cricket, and I always, like most young men, cherished dreams of playing at a higher level, perhaps the highest level. By the time I entered ministry, I'd given that dream away, at least at the level of reality. But there were moments, too many moments as it turned out, when at times there was nothing demanding my attention and effortlessly and to my shame, perhaps habitually, my thoughts would go off into the realm of fantasy and I would be scoring centuries all over the world. <laughs> I was an opening batsman and I opened the New Zealand innings in places like Lords, Old Trafford, the Gabba, the MCG, Sabina Park, Eden Gardens, you name it. I played there. And in my mind, I flayed famous bowling attacks to all parts of the world. And my innings were always peppered with classic cover drives, with delicate back cuts, with vicious pulls, and nobody knew how to bowl to me. Because <laughs> I just crashed them. To, I, I particularly like flaying the Australians. <laughs> Forgive me if you're Australian, but... You know, the funny thing, you're laughing at me and you're thinking, God, he's pathetic. When I've told this story, as I've done a few times, people always come to me afterwards. Maybe not today, because you'll be cancelled out by this comment. But people have come to me afterwards and said, Don, I scored tries for the All Blacks everywhere. I played concerts with Eric Clapton. I won the heavyweight boxing championship. And best of all was somebody who told me that he won World War II all by himself. <laughs> Cover drives just cannot compete. 
When I would daydream in this manner, often when I was doing the dishes, we didn't have a dishwasher in those days, so you'd be you know, effortlessly, habitually thinking. I guess I was vaguely aware of a sense of discomfort, a sense of dis-ease, but I justified it on the basis of it wasn't impure. At least I'm not thinking bad thoughts. I'm, they're just cricket thoughts. One day I was reading 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and I was profoundly challenged. And you know the scripture. It talks about casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And the Holy Spirit, in that moment, put his finger on the idolatrous nature of my imaginings. I've still struggled. Um, I was kind of thinking, but surely it's not, you know, that bad. Just not long after that, I was reading an old Puritan writer by the name of William Law, and I was stunned by a phrase he wrote. He said, imagination as the last and truest support of self lays unseen worlds at our feet and crowns us with secret revenges and fancied honours. And in that moment, I was smitten. And, and I realised that my ultimate idolatry, as for many, I suspect, was the idolatry of self. My thoughts habitually and effortlessly went in the glorification of myself. You know, God's word has only one answer to idols, and that's destroy them. He never says, bring them under control. The first thing that Moses did when he came down the mountain and saw the golden calf was he tore it down. He took it down from its pedestal. And it really doesn't matter whether the idol is mental or metal, whether it's a carving or a concept, if it's idolatry, it has to come down. And since we built them, we need to tear them down. And for me, that involved a process of taking my thoughts captive. And I'd be washing the dishes a week later, and as I was strolling out to bat and about to take guard, I suddenly realized, oh my goodness. And I'd put my bat under my arm, take my batting gloves off and walk back to the pavilion without facing a ball. And sometimes I'd be involved in two or three overs before I even realised what was going on. It took me time to tear that thing down because it was effortless and it was habitual. Moses took the calf down from its elevated position and then he broke it up. He didn't say, get it under control. He broke it up and... And, and uh, he lowered it down, broke it up. If we leave those things intact, we may not be able to successfully resist the temptation to reinstate them at another time. Moses, if you know the story, then burnt it and scattered its ashes. He was determined that that thing would never, ever be reconstructed. You know, wherever the, go wherever the gospel goes with Holy Spirit power, as it did in Thessalonica under the ministry of Paul, it results in a people, as Thessalonica says, turning to God from idols to serve the true and living God. Friends, the reality is we're all worshippers. The question is not will you worship, the question is what or who do you worship? God wants our allegiance and our worship. And like Daniel and his friends, we live in a culture that increasingly is hostile to our faith. It is hostile to our worldview. And it is aggressively demanding our allegiance to all its current idols and ideologies. Progressively, we are finding the heat being turned up. 
And I suspect that will only increase. And we must determine who it is that we will give our hearts and our worships to. Daniel's, uh, Daniel chapter 3 is one of the greatest examples of faith, of worship, and allegiance, I think, in the whole Bible. Because these three men were dragged before Nebuchadnezzar. They were dragged before the officials. And, they, and these, these men will not worship. They will not bow down to the ideologies and the culture. So they were to be thrown in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll give you one more chance. And they said, don't bother. Verse 16 and verse 18 from the message translation says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered King Nebuchadnezzar, your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might cook up, O king. But even if it doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. We won't do it. I think increasingly as believers we are going to be pushed to that place where we have to draw a line in the sand and we say, I won't do that. I won't bow to that ideology. I won't bow to that idol. Deliverance, of course, is to be desired and anticipated, but even if it doesn't come, there can be and will not be any abandonment of the worship of Yahweh. Death as a result of loyalty to Yahweh is preferable to these young men to deliverance at the price of denying him, and they say, we will not do it. You know what, as I finish, in the West, at least at present, we don't have to die for him. We do, however, have the incredible challenge of living for him, of maintaining the purity and exclusivity of our worship. And in the end, that might just about be as taxing and demanding as dying for him, because we're going to find the pressure put on us. We do hope, as the musicians, if you would come, we do hope that this series that we've done on people of worship really has um, helped you. We hope it's shaped you. We hope it's built something of a fortitude inside of you to be the kind of person that God's eyes are scouring the earth for, the people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. We long to be a people of worship. It will be contested. Worship always is. But we determine in our hearts we will be that people that maintain purity and exclusivity of worship to Yahweh. We will worship Him. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.